It happens quick, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, I want to look to the Word this morning, continuing in this series that I'm calling Fully Mature. Took my inspiration for these sermons from just a brief passage in the first chapter of Colossians. I read it to you several weeks ago, but I want to read it to you again this morning, just as a reminder, really for myself, as much as anyone. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, the Apostle Paul writes that it is Christ Jesus. He is the one that we proclaim. Admonishing, which means warning, we're actually warning folks. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And I think this is a reminder and should be an everlasting reminder to us that the goal of the church isn't just to make converts and then move on. The goal of the church is to help every follower of Christ develop spiritual maturity so that they might become fully mature, not just a little bit mature, but fully mature. Now, over the last two Sundays, we took a deeper look at, at one aspect of spiritual maturity. We call it the maturing of our minds. Uh, I referred many times to the development of a good, robust, accurate theology. If we're going to mature in our faith, we need to be able to think and to speak accurately about God. But I don't want to talk about that anymore. That's all I have to say about that, Forrest Gump. Um, I, instead, Today, I I wanted to talk about piano lessons. So I got the piano here. Um, Could we do that? Could we just talk about piano lessons for a little while? I think that would be fun and different. I've taken a lot of piano lessons in my life. I started taking piano lessons uh, with a private piano teacher before I was in kindergarten. And I took them all through growing up, all through my teenage years. I was trained in classical music, so I learned to play Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Chopin and all of those guys. Um, I went to college. When I graduated from high school, I left for college and I studied music. I was a piano performance major, so I kept on with my piano lessons. And when I got into college, uh, I continued to study predominantly classical music, but I also would, you know, go in on some of the jazz classes. And I learned, you know, what I learned first is that nobody pays any money for anybody to play Beethoven. You can't earn money doing that. But if you can play pop music, you could, you know, get a job playing at a wedding reception or something like that. So I learned to play pop so that I could earn a buck or two without actually having to work. Um, so, so that was good. It would be hard for me to, you know, count exactly, but I took a classical piano lesson at least once a week for more than 20 years. That would be something like a thousand piano lessons there. And then certainly when I was in college, multiple times a week, I was in some sort of studio or something, maybe with a group, maybe with an ensemble learning. I've taken a lot, a lot, a lot of piano lessons. And um, you guys, I'm sure a lot of you have, have taken piano lessons or some other instrument or music lessons of some sort at some point, so maybe you'll identify with this. One of the first things we learn if you're taking formal piano lessons is we learn to play our scales. And so a a scale is just a a series of of the notes kind of right in order and you go up and you go down and, and there's a certain pattern that you use in a scale. We have half steps and we have whole steps and we put them together. Oh, let's make this sound like a piano. We're going to talk about pianos. Either. Yeah, that sounds like a piano. And then 
we piano players, we learn to do them with two hands. I didn't practice that at all for today. <laughs> Memory. Yeah, yeah, I got that one down. Um, and we drill our scales over and over and over and over. I can't tell you how many, over the course of my life, how many hours of scales I've played. And not a few people have quit their music lessons because after six months, all they've learned to do is play the scales. And, right, right? Do we have any, any scale refugees in the room? I'll bet some of you were like, yeah, I didn't know. That, that was not fun at all. As a piano player, one of the major challenges in playing a scale is you're trying to make all the notes sound even and alike, but each of our five fingers is physiologically very, very different, right? Uh, your, your pointer finger is the strongest finger, and your middle finger is the longest finger, and your pinky's weak and it doesn't move independently. Anytime you move it, some of the other fingers come along even though they weren't asked and your thumb is big and heavy and clunky and faces a different direction than the rest. And so you have to take these, these five different implements and make each one of them sound exactly the same as we go up. And then we put our hands together and it's not even like, you know, it might be the pointer finger of, of your right hand with the ring finger of your left hand still in practice, I just did that. Be impressed, right? Um, and, and so then the teachers are like, okay, so good, you, you learned your skills, but now we gotta, we gotta work harder on them. We gotta we do more things. There's not just one scale. Um, that what I just played was a major scale, which has the half steps and the whole steps arranged in a particular way. Uh, there's also minor scales. There's actually three different minor scales. There's the, uh, this is the natural minor scale. And then we have the harmonic minor scale. Sounds a little different. And we have the melodic minor scale. I'm sure you all are fascinated by this. Um, three, so major scale, three different minor scales. Those are the ones we use a lot in classical music. We would also learn the chromatic scale, which is literally every note. This one was my favorite, the whole tone scale, which is just a bunch of whole steps in a row, and it sounds like a dream sequence from a movie. Are you ready for this? scale. Those are the scales that we would use in classical music, but I would get into, uh, you know, I told you I studied a little bit of jazz in college, and so we learned the blues scale. We have to do that one in a bunch of different keys. I won't play these all. There's the augmented scale, diminished scale, pentatonic scale, which is very important in pop music. There's a major pentatonic and a minor pentatonic scale. And then keep in mind that the, the, the instrument itself is made up of, of 12 different notes that then repeat, so you, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, and all the sharps and flats, there's 12 distinct notes. So you could play any one of the, what did I just name, about eight or nine scales? You play any one of them beginning on any one of the 12 notes. I mean, there's hundreds, hundreds of scales 
Then as piano players, we would learn to play not just in parallel motion, but in, in contrary motion. So right hand goes up, left hand goes down. We would do that, do that again and again. And then we would do um, the piano teacher, some of you are having PTSD already, I can tell. Um, would put on the metronome, metronome clicks and keeps, and you would have to play right along, steady beat, do this for me. Give me a metronome here. Okay, don't speed it up. But we would start with the metronome. One note for B. Up. You're kind of like yawning. The teacher would say, okay, double time. But we would do that again and again and again. And that's like the OCD exercise because like it gets faster and faster and you get tenser and tenser and it's just, it's not fun. It's not fun. And the reason I've been thinking about scales <laughs> recently, uh, a few weeks ago, we went to a choir concert, end of the year choir concert at, at Jessica's high school. And um, in between some of the choir numbers, a few of the students came out and played solos on their instrument of choice. And a young man came out and sat down at the piano and he played uh, a nocturne by Chopin that probably familiar to some of you. Sound familiar? Right, okay. And he played this song, very, very beautiful song. He did a very, very nice job. As the song goes on, this melodic figure comes back again and again, and it gets more and more ornate, more and more complicated. And by the end, you're kind of like buzzing around the piano, and it makes all the grandmas in the audience go, oh. you know, it's <laughs> one of those kinds of songs. And, and I, he did a fine job, but I noticed that as it got more and more complicated, as students do, he struggled more and more, and by the end he kind of fudged and, you know, like, and most people probably wouldn't have noticed, but I'm very, very familiar with the piece he was playing, and I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, been there, dude, feel you, bro, right? And the thought I had in that moment wasn't he needs to go home and practice Chopin more. The thought I had in that moment was he needs to go home and practice his scales more. Because what was happening for him wasn't that he was failing to play Chopin, it's that the music itself is built on all that ornate running around with your fingers. It's, it's just the scales. And it's the scales, you know, maybe starting and stopping in different places and moving here and there, but it's the, and, and it, that's why we drill our scales again and again and again and again, because so much of the music that we play is built on the scales. It's not just the scales, it's the arpeggios. You ever encounter those if you did music lessons? Arpeggio is like a scale, but you only play the notes in the scale that correspond to a particular chord. So if, a, if an E scale sounds like this, an E arpeggio only plays the notes that correspond to the E chord. So, 
the scales I just referenced, and then we play all of the arpeggios we just referenced, and then we open our music book and we discover that, oh my goodness, that's really what this was, only Chopin was really good at putting them in an order that makes all the grandmas go, oh, you know, and, and so you, you have to work on it. Um, as a piano player, one of the very first pieces of classical music that I learned to play was a minuet by Bach. Um, uh, Beethoven, uh, the Pathétique Sonata. That was the C minor scale. I mean, it was a lot more interesting, and yeah, I flubbed over that, because I haven't done this in a lot of years. Uh, WC, listen to this. This is a D-flat major scale. And the D-flat major scale comes down this way. And WC said, I could make that more interesting. Do we recognize this? He's just working his way down the scale. And down another step. Down a little more. It's just the scale, folks. It's just the scale. Uh, it's not just piano music. Mozart was a fiend for arpeggios. Um, how many of us know the picture of string orchestra? The G arpeggio. Da, da, da. They all did that for 10 years, warming up on their instruments. Somewhere, Connie Reynolds, she's at her summer home in Michigan. She's watching online now with her violin in hand going, oh, preach, preach, right? Mozart in his operas. arpeggio. He puts it in an opera, it's called the magic flute, it changes music for centuries, right? Um, oh, but it's not just classical music. It's not just classical music. I, I told you I went to school, started learning a little bit about jazz, just so I could make a living. Um, and, you know, the blues scale. I took a couple of classes on jazz improv. We, we musicians would all sit around in the room, piano players, guitar players, bass players, horn players, and I thought, oh, this is gonna be so cool. We're gonna like, you know, play some jazz. Like, this will be cool. And then we just played scales. Week after week after week of the blues scale, again and again and again. I about lost my mind. And then he's like, teacher's like, okay, so let's just begin to improvise. Only the rules were you can just play the blues scale. And so all of a sudden you start, the blues scale again and again and you start to, oh my goodness like all these great jazz standards it's just the scale D minor scale again and again and again I, I, I'm still going like I, I, hope, I hope you're not bored yet because it's not just classical music it's not just jazz uh, D major scale put like a Broadway oom-pa-pa under it and we got Oklahoma, 
I'm not done yet. Arpeggios, right? I talked about arpeggios. Take a B flat. Stomp on the pedal, let it all, it doesn't sound pretty. But if you're Freddie Mercury and you sit down at the piano and play your B flat arpeggio, silhouette of a man. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's the first time that's been sung in a church in a long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll be on the set. Thank you, Carmen. Eddie Van Halen, who was a classically trained pianist before he ever picked up a guitar. Eddie Van Halen sits down and he's working on his D minor scale. He's like, well, I, I think we could rearrange those notes in a different order, but still just go up and down the scale, just kind of skipping back and forth a little bit, and let's put it under some different, or over some different notes in the bass. I got, I got one more for you. <laughs> and then at some point I have to read a verse here. Because um, I told you, it's, I like, so my uh, weapon is the piano, right? But it's not just piano, guitar players have to learn their scales. Guitar players have to learn their arpeggios. David's over there nodding. Bass players too, David. The bass players have to sax learn their players. scales. Sax players. Um, somewhere, Along, the, I'm not even going to tell you who uh, is is playing his A minor arpeggios, which sounds like that. What if we did it upside down? What if we did it that way? And then what if we just added like one of those, and then one of another, and then we did like. probably could get that one into the set because it talks about heaven. Yeah. There's a lady Right, 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 right. If only you guys knew scripture that well. Yeah, there we go. There we go. How about a Bible story? <laughs> The earliest books of the Old Testament tell the story of how God used Moses to lead the Israelites out of the bondage that they had lived in when they were in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, they journeyed through the wilderness, and eventually they settled in what we call the Promised Land, which was an area that corresponds more or less to the modern day nation of Israel. This journey that they took by foot from Egypt through the wilderness into the Promised Land, it was a very, very complicated journey. It was a lot more complicated than it should have been. Scholars tell us today that that journey from Egypt to the Promised Land by foot, if they had just taken the direct route and not gotten sidetracked, that journey should have taken them a couple of weeks on the outside. Um, but it actually took them 40 years to make that journey. And so an entire generation of Israelites, including Moses, actually passed away on that journey. And so it was their children, it wasn't them, it was their children who 
had been born as nomads along the way. Their, their children actually entered the promised land. Now, there's many reasons why this journey from slavery to freedom became so complicated and it took so long. One of the reasons that the Bible points out again and again and again is that those travelers who were living in the freedom that God had purchased for them, uh, they were failing to live their daily lives as God intended. Uh, The Bible says they were stubborn. The Bible says they were rebellious and they rarely, rarely followed through with any kind of commitment to godliness. And so more than a thousand years after that journey takes place, the apostle Paul refers to it in one of his letters. He has this to say about their journey. And this is what I'm going to read to you today from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. I'm going to read a few paragraphs here. I'm going to get us into chapter 10, but these words will appear on the screen. You can follow along if you like. The apostle Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like somebody running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul's point is this. By the way, not a very encouraging passage of Scripture, is it? (laughs) Not terribly encouraging. I reminded you at the beginning that a big part of this message has to do with admonitions. It's warnings. It's not necessarily feel-good Sunday, right? But here's his point. He's saying, look, guys, we have to remember that once upon a time, there was an entire nation of people who thought that they could get by just by being part of the right group. They thought that God's blessing and protection would cover them just because they lived their lives alongside Moses. That's why he said they were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For them, spiritual maturity meant 
hanging around in the right place with the right people, every one of those people could, could visibly see the manifestation of God's presence in, in the cloud that Paul's referring to in the story. Every one of them could hear the voice of Moses, God's greatest prophet. They were all hearing the same things. They were all doing the same things, but they weren't all living the same way. It would be like us thinking that we're saved just because we go to the right church, read the right books, and listen to the right preacher. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not how this works. Their lives didn't work out well. Many of them actually lost their lives, in large part because though they lived close to God's presence, they placed themselves outside his protection. And the reason that Paul highlights is because they failed to develop the daily habits required to reach real spiritual maturity. What did they do? Well, they didn't have daily worship habits. They, they worshiped idols instead. They didn't have uh, good habits about purity. They were sexually immoral. They didn't apply God's words to their everyday life. They were ungrateful, one of many examples that he gives. Were they saved? Well, yeah, in the sense that they were no longer slaves. But were they living the blessed life that God had planned for them in the promised land? Not even close. Paul says they were like a bunch of runners who entered a race but never bothered to train for it. Or they were like boxers who looked good in the gym but couldn't take a real punch. And their lives stand as a cautionary tale to anybody who believes that God saved them but didn't realize that spiritual maturity requires daily work. We cannot be fully mature without developing some mature habits along the way. But we had best be ready to work at it, Paul says, because mature habits don't come easily. What kind of mature habits do I have in mind? Well, the kind of regular habits that foster spiritual health, the kinds of things that help us become fully mature, like the Bible says. For 2,000 years, Christians have recognized the value in, in the kinds of regular habits that foster spiritual growth and maturity. Things like the regular reading of Scripture on our own, memorization and, and, and meditation on the Word of God, personal prayer, personal times of worship, servanthood, fasting, gathering for worship with other believers, things like that. The first Christians, they took their cue from Jesus himself, who was well known for his habit of retreating for regular times of solitary prayer. In the centuries that followed, the church fathers and mothers uh, were often known for their adherence to spiritual disciplines like, like fasting or like meditating for long periods of time on scripture. In the Middle Ages, it was what we call the monastic movement. It gave birth to a whole new way of adhering to spiritual disciplines. Benedict developed what he called the rule, which was essentially a daily schedule of spiritual disciplines. And modern day Christians haven't, haven't lost sight of this. We've continued to emphasize the importance of mature spiritual habits that don't necessarily come easily, but they yield great reward in our journey toward maturity. Jessica's gonna be studying next year at Evangel University, a Bible college. She'll be taking 
uh, her very first Bible class, we got her, her schedule and her course listing uh, by email a few weeks ago. And the first book she's going to read in her intro class is Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, an absolute classic. It's on my shelf. I ran to my office and grabbed it to her. I said, Jessica, here's your very first college textbook. There it is. Read it. Read it well. Uh, one of the great classic pieces of literature from the past generation about the importance of developing daily habits of spiritual maturity. It's hard work. It's hard work. Most of us would never develop habits like these if, if we just lived each day according to what felt most pleasant at any given moment. And can I point out that that's actually usually what the world's idea of spirituality invites us to do. The world asks questions like, well, what, what really makes you happy? Where is your heart most comfortable? What gives you peace? The world says, do that and the universe will make sure that everything works out okay for you. Compare that to what Paul says in what we just read. He said in verse 27, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. It's hard work. Oftentimes it's uncomfortable work, but it's necessary work if we're going to grow to be fully mature. If we fail to develop mature habits, we devolve into some kind of spiritual, like Lord of the Flies scenario where immature impulses rule our actions and destruction follows closely behind. I read an article this week that reported that Americans spent last year more than $3.5 billion on weight loss programs. The article said that the global weight loss industry, so the money that we're spending on weight loss plus the value of all of these different programs and companies around the world this year is projected to be worth $300 billion. People will buy almost anything that promises to help you lose weight. In the early 20th century, you could buy in catalogs, you could order in catalogs, tapeworms to swallow. The idea being that then you could eat whatever you wanted and the tapeworm would just eat it for you. In the 1950s, there was a brand of cigarettes that was sold with the promise as a weight loss aid, claiming that they would cause a loss of up to 20 pounds in eight weeks as long as you smoked three a day because of, and I quote, mouth dryness and tissue shrinking. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. This is my favorite. In the 1970s, there was a brand of sunglasses sold called the Vision Dieter which boasted, and I quote, secret European color technology. <laughs> secret European color technology that would help quash hunger pains throughout the day, just by wearing sunglasses. I wonder which of today's weight loss methods will we be laughing at 50 years from now? Products like these continue to work because they seem like an easier substitute for diet and exercise. People are always looking for an easy substitute for hard work, but the Bible says there is no substitute for mature habits. There's no alternative route. There's no shortcut. There's no cliff's notes. It's mature habits. There's no other way. Listen again to what Paul said. We, I read it a few moments ago. Why does he put so much effort into developing mature habits? It was in verse 27. He says, so that after I have preached to others, I myself 
won't be disqualified for the prize. In other words, he's saying, I'm the preacher. I'm the missionary. I'm the Bible expert. I'm the one who hears directly from God. I'm the one who helps everyone else grow to be physically mature. I'm sorry, spiritually mature. But if I don't do these things, I run the risk of preaching a really good sermon and then disqualifying myself from the very prize I just preached about. I need to have mature habits because there's no substitute. Remember the cautionary tale of the Israelites with Moses. They believed they would be fine just as long as they stayed together. As long as, hey, we're all part of this group. This is God's favorite group. As long as we're part of the club, we're good. They thought God's plans for their lives were ironclad and nothing could destroy them. They didn't worry about mature habits because they thought they had found an easier pathway to God's blessing. Here's one of the most difficult things that we need to learn as we grow in our faith. Are you ready for this? In this world, sin ruins things. That's the lesson, folks. There it is. That's the post. In this world, sin ruins things. We cannot afford the kind of ignorance that assumes life is like a TV show. When you're with Jesus, everything's going to work out perfectly by the end of the episode, no matter what. That's not the way things go. The circumstances of our lives are not nearly so certain. The promises of God are bountiful and they are good, but they come with careful instructions for those who wish to receive them. Ignore the instructions and you're likely to forfeit the blessings. Listen to this. God's hand on your life today does not give you license to live however you want tomorrow. That's the story of scripture. You can lose your inheritance. Don't believe me? Just ask Esau. Just ask Samson. Just ask King Solomon. You can lose your inheritance. Just ask the two million Israelites who walked out of Egypt in freedom with Moses. Only two weeks journey away from the promised land. All but two of those people died in the wilderness, having never once grabbed a hold of the inheritance God had in store for them. So instead of celebrating the stories of faith heroes who journeyed into glory, here we are today taking caution at the memory of shallow graves in the wilderness. Because the difficult truth is this, immature habits have the power to destroy. Immature habits have the power to destroy. People say, well, why would God do that to me? Brother, God didn't do that to you. (laughs) You did that to yourself. Immature habits have the power to destroy. That's the whole point that Paul is making in reminding us of the plight of the Israelites. One of the most common questions people have about the Bible is its relevance. Like, why do we even need to learn those stories? Why, Why is that important? How does it pertain to real life in the here and now. When you go to school and learn how to preach, that's one of the things they they teach you to try and do. They say, you know, uh, your audience, your congregation, they aren't gonna listen unless they understand why it's relevant. And so you have to really do a good job of explaining why it's relevant. Why do we have to read stories about ancient characters and civilizations that are foreign to us? What is the point and why Does it even matter? Let's be honest, have you ever wondered that? Well, here's the thing. 
Paul answered that in the passage we read. He said, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings. There's that word again. They were written down as warnings for us. So here's the real deal, folks. Chances are you'll probably never find yourself in a lion's den like Daniel did. But if you make it a goal to develop mature habits, you absolutely will find yourself in a position where the rules of the world go against the convictions of your heart. And you'll probably never find yourself in the belly of a great fish like Jonah did. But if you make it a goal to develop mature habits, you absolutely will find yourself in a situation where the allure of worldly success pulls you in the opposite direction from God's call in your life. And you'll probably never find yourself in a palace like Esther did. But if you make it a goal to develop mature habits, then you absolutely will find yourself in a situation where you have to risk everything you have in order to stand in righteousness. And so these are given to you as an example, as warnings for us. And that's exactly why we must make it a habit among the many other disciplines that we engage in, among the many other mature habits that we would do well to develop. We must make a habit to read and to reread and to study and to meditate on the words of scripture because without habits and others like them, our spiritual growth will always be stunted. Back to my childhood, we already sang Jesus Loves Me, another one of the songs that we learned to sing in church or in vacation Bible school when we were four and five and six years old, began like this. It said, neglect your Bible, forget to pray, forget to pray, forget to pray. And then at the end it said, if you do those things, then you'll shrink, shrink, shrink and you'll shrink shrink and we would get down and we would like get, laugh ourselves silly and get down until we were laying on the floor i think they were just trying to frighten kids into stunted growth or something if you neglect your bible and forget to pray you'll shrink but then there was a verse two where it said now read your bible pray every day and you'll grow 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 and we would get up a little bit more each time and then by the end you'll grow you'll grow you'll grow and I, I think back on those we did some crazy things in the 70s <laughs> yeah I was going to say even in churches but like especially in churches I think like that that's a, that's a pretty frightening song isn't it like if you don't read your bible John every day you will shrink you, your growth will be stunted you will have like forget about calcium that's not going to help you grow you need to read your <laughs> And the short kids in the room were especially afraid of that song. We might want to rethink how we teach kids to sing about the Bible in a few cases. But is the principle there accurate? That it's these daily disciplines that foster the maturity and the spiritual growth. Do this and you will grow. That's what the word of God says. Do this and you will grow. Do this and you will grow. Do it not, and you'll never be the healthy creature that God created you to be. And so you know what we do? We practice our scales. And so each day we sit down at the instrument of our spiritual life, and rarely, if ever, do we play symphonies or concertos. We never start with those things. Instead, we go into strict training 
in order to get a crown that will last forever. We don't sit down and pound out these notes aimlessly. Our exercises are slow and incredibly purposeful. Some days, trust me, I know of what I speak. Some days it feels like we have to beat our bodies and make it our slave. We have to play the scale 10 more times. We have to increase the tempo just a little bit more. We have to do it again and again. We have to make it a habit so that our body knows what it feels like to play the music that life and God are gonna put in front of us. Sometimes we make mistakes, but when those things happen, we just back up, slow down, try it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, if that's what it takes. Because if we don't, the music that we're gonna play is never going to sound right. And that's how we play today. And tomorrow, we do it again, up and down the keyboard, note by note, finger by finger, with great discipline and great focus, because that's how we were designed to learn. That's how we were designed to grow. And that's what it looks like to have mature habits. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for designing us with the innate ability to grow in our spirits, to become, as your word puts it, fully mature. Thank you for designing us with that capability, but thank you for reminding us at the same time that it's a capability, but not an inevitability. Thank you for giving us the warnings. They aren't always our favorite passages in the Bible. We would rather read the exciting stories of great victories and great heroes, but we need to be reminded sometimes that those great heroes sometimes spent 40 years walking through desert wildernesses, day by day by day, developing the simple, sometimes boring, disciplines that are required for those who would wish to be fully mature. God, help us to have mature habits. Help us not to run aimlessly or to beat the air mindlessly like a boxer who's never actually been in the ring. But Lord, help us to train. Help us to train well. And whether it's scales on the piano or sprints for the football team or stretches for a different kind of athlete, Help us to remember that those things, just as they prepare our bodies for a physical activity, in the same way we need to be dutiful about the habits that will prepare our spirits for the great things that are in front of us. Lord, let it not be said of us that we were unprepared because we hadn't taken seriously the responsibility of maturity. Let it not be said of us that we weren't ready for the challenge because we had never trained. But let it be said of us instead that that people, that community, that church, indeed, Lord, that nation was ready for what God had called them for because they took very, very seriously the admonition of Scripture
that they developed mature habits, that they lived Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday in the same manner that they celebrated on Sunday. Lord, help us to grow fully mature. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.